So we continue today in the book of Luke. We've called this sermon series, Follow, and we've been looking at Luke's argument for why you should follow Jesus. And so uh, he's been just piling up evidence of who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and then is welcoming, welcoming us in to uh, become his followers. And, 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 you know, we can look at that argument and we, we know that usually it takes more than just some evidence and some argument. And we talked about last week how usually the doorway into following Jesus is an experience of helplessness. And so we come to the end of ourselves, realizing that only Jesus can, can save us uh, from sin and its effects. And, and it's then that we say, absolutely, I'm going to follow you because you've saved me, right? And what we want to talk about today is kind of the, the, the other side of the coin of helplessness. And the other side of the coin of that moment of helplessness is also coming to believe that uh, the salvation, quote-unquote, that this, the world offers is not enough. That it's not enough. That this is the other thing that's happening when we enter into this doorway of following Jesus. Not only that we're helpless, but that the world is really offering no help. And that's, that takes some convincing for us as human beings, because we're so, we're so drawn to what the world has to offer. And, and this is what this text is driving at. Now, um, Jesus is uh, talking to his uh, original disciples, right? He's about to start a worldwide movement of disciple-making, and he's chosen this, this initial 12, and he is giving them the opening speech of his campaign. Uh, and so, any movement leader has got to convince his followers that the future that's, that's in his, his plan or her plan is the good life. Like if I can convince you that what I have to offer is the good life, then you will follow. You will become part of the movement. This is what political candidates are doing right now. They're saying, look at this good life that I'll give you if you vote for me. And so there might be better wages, better, better health care. Uh, it, it, it might be college debt forgiveness. But usually it's around the, the economy. That's usually the main topic. There's, there's, there's other topics, but the main topic of most political campaigns in, in, the, in the states, at least, is, is the economy. I mean, even when, when Bill Clinton was running for president, he had a big banner in his, uh, his campaign headquarters that said, It's the economy, stupid. And it was just a reminder to his campaign, we've got to talk about the economy. Like, that's what Americans care about. That's what the good life is, at least according to the American narrative. And, and really, in, in a lot of ways, it, it's not different than the people of the first century. They also were really concerned about the economy, their economics. And, and so we have Jesus ad addressing that narrative of the good life and offering a replacement for that narrative. And so let's take a look. Let's take a look at Luke 6, verse 20. It says, He lifted up His eyes on His disciples and He said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. This is not what you would expect a movement leader to say. I, I don't think Jesus could get uh, nominated or voted in as president with that kind of speech, right? Blessed are you, you're poor, right? For yours is the kingdom of God. 
So we see a formula here. We see uh, a blessed are, and then we see a descriptor of a particular group of people, and then we see a promise to that group. So you can see that pattern over and over and over, the blessed, the descriptor, and the promise. And again, this is similar to the, the formula of the political parties that are uh, trying to get people to vote for their candidate, right? Blessed are you who vote for me because you're going to get this. And they paint the picture of whatever the good life is that they're offering, right? And so in a way, Jesus is doing something similar, but he's turning it on its head in a powerful way. So this idea of blessed, so think of it this way. It's human thriving as a result of being rightly related with God. Blessed means human thriving as a result of being rightly related with God. You see this in both Old Testament and New. You may be aware of this Psalm uh, chapter 1. Blessed is the man or the human who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So it's this idea of thriving. Use this illustration of a tree that's green with life and producing fruit. This This is the idea of being blessed. And that blessing comes from being rightly related. Blessed is the person who is rightly relating to God through his word. But in, in Jesus' description here, blessed are the poor. Now, this is unsettling to certainly the original hearers, but it's even unsettling to us. How could being poor be a blessing? Now, this is not exactly what Jesus is saying. He, he's not saying that you're blessed because you're poor. That, that, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you who are poor are blessed because you're rightly relating with God. You are in the kingdom. You are a citizen of the kingdom. And, and they, like us, had equated wealth with blessing. But not only that, they had equated wealth with God's favor. And so they thought rich people are blessed by God, poor people are not. And Jesus is turning that narrative on its head. He's saying you could be poor and live the blessed life. Why? The promise is because you're a member of the kingdom of God. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. Think of it as, as a passport. If you have a passport, it, 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 it declares that you are a citizen of a particular country and you have all the rights and privileges of that country. Right? And so he's saying, blessed are those who are poor because you have this citizenship in the kingdom of God. Now, he's not romanticizing being poor. We in no way want to believe that this is what Christ is saying. Poverty, when I say poverty, I mean not having access to meaningful work that can produce wealth to care for your needs. That kind of poverty is a result of sin. Part of the created order is that human beings were created to work to work. It was, it's, it's part of their inherent worth and dignity that they would work at a meaningful job and that job would produce wealth so they could care for themselves and even care for others. And so 
poverty is the result of sin, both individual sin and systemic sin. And it's something that Jesus has come to redeem. And it's, it's part of how, what, what the gospel can transform, both individuals and systems, such that poverty can be alleviated. Uh, he's also not romanticizing the poor. Right? He's not romanticizing being poor. He's not romanticizing the poor. Poor people are sinners, just like rich people. Uh, poor people, without redeeming grace from Jesus, will exploit others. They will hoard resources. They will lie. They will cheat. They will steal, just like rich people. Many of you have been, have been aware of uh, our participation in uh, a project in a place called Las Malvinas. Las Malvinas is in the Dominican Republic, and uh, we helped to start a soap factory in really one of the most impoverished communities on the planet. And so, so through some of the work of Kevin Maforte and others, we got a, a soap factory built there that was employing some of the women of the community. It's amazing. And there's a number of the women that because of the wages that they were able to receive, were able to take care of their families in better ways. Uh, some of them moved into education that then has led to other jobs that are even better than the ones that they had in the soap factory. And it's, it's, it's an incredible vision of, of what uh, love fueled by the gospel in a very hard place can bring about transformation, both of individuals and uh, systems. But also, there were others that had been part of that soap factory who stole from the business. Uh, others that didn't show up for work and had to be fired. Uh, others that, that were fighting among themselves and, and making production almost impossible. It was both, right? It was, poor people are sinners, just like rich people. And they have some of the, the same issues uh, in need of redemption from Christ. So it's not saying poor people good, rich people bad. What it is saying is that the good life is something greater than wealth. It's something greater than wealth. Look at the next blessed there, verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. So again, the word blessed, human thriving, is a result of being rightly related with God. Uh, then this descriptor of the hungry. Now, this is a new level of neediness. You're not just poor, but you don't have enough food to eat. And you're feeling that. You're feeling hunger. There's a deficit in your basic existence. Now, the promise is you will be satisfied. I once heard a Bible teacher say, well, the reason people are poor or they're hungry is because they're not Christians, and if they become Christians, they'll get fed. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. There is a general truism that if you're a child of God, that you can uh, pray to God and ask for provision, and, and God meets that provision. Jesus teaches this in places like Matthew 6, verse 31, says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Jesus is definitely teaching it. Provision is, some, is part of the care of God for His people. But, but even more than that, he, he's, he, he's saying there's, there's something deeper, there's something more significant than just the, 
clothes on your back. It's the kingdom of God. This is, this is more worthwhile than even the physical provision of this world. There's a satisfaction there that can only be had in the kingdom. You hear this in Paul's words, Philippians 4. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to, be, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul revealing there, there's a deeper satisfaction than even having enough food. And he's been in a, in a place in his life where he's been hungry. And he's like, I've learned to be content, even there. That there's a deeper satisfaction that's found in Christ. This is what we're communicating whenever we, we fast. If we fast, we're, we're saying that, that the sufficiency found in God is greater than food and sleep or sex or anything else. Right? And so it, it, it's this reality of this deeper satisfaction. He goes on, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. So there's the blessed again, human thriving, result, resulting from right relationship with God. There's the descriptor, those who weep. This is even more uncomfortable. We've gone from being impoverished to being hungry to weeping. When you reach a place of weeping, you, you've had a breaking point. You're no longer trying to find a job or get a meal or figure something out or strategize. You, you've, you've broken down and you're, you're weeping over your pain. You're weeping over your deprivation. And, and, and the promise is laughter. You go from the breaking point of weeping to this laughter. And, and laughter is a, also a place where you're not strategizing. You're not trying to figure something out or survive. Joy has just welled up in you and you're laughing because of that joy. Jesus is describing joy that's beyond circumstances. You hear him talk about that joy in places like John 15, 11. This is the night before he dies on the cross. He says to his disciples, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. <laughs> it's the night before his death. And he's saying, I, I have joy. That joy is bubbling up. I, I want that to be your joy as well. And so those who live in the kingdom can experience a state of blessing in the face of deprivation and pain. This is good news. This is good news. He goes on to uh, the deepest of deprivation and pain in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, they revile you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So again, blessed, the state of human thriving resulting from right relationship with God. The descriptor is those hated by others, right? This one seems different. The others seemed kind of individual. I'm hungry. I'm weeping. I'm, uh, I'm poor. I'm hungry. I'm weeping. And, and this is more relational. I'm being excluded, right? People don't want to talk to me. They don't want to call me. 
I'm being reviled. Not only are they not talking to me, now they're attacking me. And my name is being spurned. Not, not only am I I'm being attacked, I'm being rejected, but they're talking bad about me out in the world. That's the kind of rejection. And for what reason? He says, on the account of the Son of Man. We said last week that the, this term, Son of Man, is an Old Testament term for the promised Messiah, the King that would come and save Israel. Second time he identifies himself as that king. I, he's, he's saying, I am the Messiah, I am the king. And he's saying, you're going to experience persecution because you identify with me. You identify me as your king. You are in the kingdom of God. You have your passport. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. And part of that is, is going to be some blowback. There's going to be the, 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 the persecution against you. But the promise is joy. It's joy, joy today and joy in the future, in eternity. You get it now and you get it later. Uh, the apostles experienced this. The first time they ever experienced real persecution that included bodily punishment, Acts 5 verse 40. Uh, it says, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were beat on the back until bloodied with a stick. And their response was joy. Now, what's going on there? Well, a couple of things. I think one is that the presence of God is so near to His children when they're going through persecution. And so there's an experience of the, of the work of the Spirit in the Christian. But, but also, they're identifying with their Lord, with their King. They who, who saw their Lord and saw their king suffer, they're now identifying with him and saying, no, I'm all in. I love you this much, Jesus. And it's kind of this positive feedback loop. You, yeah, I said to myself, I love Jesus, but then every time you take it on the chin for Jesus, you're like, no, I really do love Jesus. And there, there, there's a rejoicing in that. It's not easy. Don't want to act like it's like no big deal. It's a big deal. But they are experiencing this positive joy loop that's coming back where they're realizing I've given everything to him right? I'm, I'm living in this kingdom and I'm experiencing a state of blessedness even though I'm experiencing persecution this is really good news it's good news in a world that's so full of pain and deprivation that the the, the blessing of being in the kingdom of God is is, is better it's more fulfilling than anything we could ever get from the world. So you may be under duress this morning because of poverty. And we want to say to you as a church, we take that seriously and we would love to come alongside of you and try to help alleviate that in some way. But we also want to say that, that there is a hope that is beyond even feeling financial deprivation. You can be in a state of blessedness even when you're experiencing that deprivation. It may be that you're feeling a poverty of, of spirit. Maybe the, the bills are paid, but you're feeling despair, you're feeling depression, you're feeling anxiety, feeling addiction. You've tried to will yourself out of that stuff and, and you, you realize you, you're absolutely without hope, you're absolutely without strength. You're, you're so hungry for growth and change. You, you've been to these breaking points where you've wept. Right? And I'm, I'm saying to you today, through Jesus, there's hope. 
you can be blessed by being in right relationship with Christ, even in the midst of those kinds of poverty, or maybe poverty of relationships. Maybe you've been hurt and rejected by others, or perhaps your own sins have sabotaged your relationships, or usually it's some kind of combination of both. Maybe experiencing a, uh, an unraveling of a marriage or, or the breakdown of relationships with family members or friends, colleagues at work, and you're feeling that poverty, you're feeling that deprivation and, and pain. I'm saying today, in Christ there's hope. Even in the midst of that kind of pain and deprivation, that because you, you can be right related, rightly related to God through faith in Christ, you can experience blessing. And, and that blessing has been given to us by grace through what Jesus did on the cross. Right? He, he died to forgive us of our sins and to give us grace to overcome our sins and to overcome the effects of our sins. And, and you know, we'll always be in, in kind of this journey of, of growing in that, but, but ultimately, He will absolutely wipe away our sins and all of sin's effects. And so because of that gospel truth, we, we can live the blessed life, the good life. They may be saying, well, I'm not that interested in Jesus as my Savior King. I mean, I like coming to church and uh, makes me feel good, maybe encourages me, but I'm not, I'm not interested. I'm all set. I'm not, I don't want to be part of this kingdom. And, and Jesus has some things to say to those folks. Uh, this is in the woe section. So you see a, a similar formula. You see the woe, you see a descriptor, and you see a judgment. Woe, descriptor, and judgment. So verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. So this idea of woe is the opposite of blessing. It's the lack of human thriving because you've been uh, separated from God by your sin. Uh, it's another word for judgment. You see, you see it all throughout uh, Old and New Testament. And the descriptor of the person experiencing the woe is the rich. I'm sure this was difficult for the original hearers to understand because they thought the rich were being blessed by God. They're like, wow, look at that rich person. They must be in right relationship with God because look how rich they are and look how poor I am. And Jesus is turning that narrative on its head, saying, no, that is not true. That is, that is not the case, right? That, that being rich apart from God is woe. It's, it's judgment, right? Now, that's hard for us to hear because we all want to be rich. We all want to be rich. We don't just want our basic needs met. We, we, we want to have enough money to do what we want when we want. Right? And we've bought into the narrative of our society that, that the blessed life is the rich life. Right? Now, our culture's a little schizophrenic on this, especially in our happy valley. On one hand, we all want to be wealthy, and most people in this area are, are wealthy. On the other hand, there's a vilification of the rich. Rich are bad. Right? The rich are bad. And our, it's so interesting, there's a, well, a, full, a town full of rich people who are saying the rich are bad. Very strange. Right? And so while we don't want to romanticize the poor, we also don't want to vilify the rich. But make no mistake, Jesus is saying that being really rich is not the blessed life. Being really rich is not the blessed 
life. I think we know that, even, even if we're not a Christian, I think we know that just having a lot of money is not the only route to the, the good life. Every time we have suicides of very rich and famous people, it's, it's like a reminder, like, ooh, having a lot of money is not the cure-all. Like the 2018, we had uh, these two that, that committed suicide, very well-known, very rich people, journalist Anthony Bourdain and designer Kate Spade within a distant few days of each other. And it was just like this wake-up call for the culture, like, whoa, these people are rich and famous, and I want to be rich and famous, and it's not the answer, right? Or in 2019, we had comedian Robin Williams and famous South Korean singer and actress Guhara that both committed suicide at the top of their game, just millions of dollars and fame and movies and music, and yet all that was not enough. So even, even if we're not a Christian, there, there, there's something uh, that, that, that as we just look at the world, we realize you know, having a bunch of money, that is not the cure-all. That is not truly satisfying. And the result, of course, he says, is, is judgment. And this judgment is you've received your consolation. It's such an interesting thing that he says here. Uh, it's his way of saying your wealth is not an adequate consoler. And again, I think, I think we see that in people's lives who, who, who are very rich, right, but, but are apart from God. Their wealth is not enough of a consoler. It's not a consoler in this life and is definitely not a consoler in the life to come. And he says, so you've gotten your consolation, but it's not adequate. The next woe says, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. So there's this same pattern. There's a woe. There's uh, this category of the full. And then there's the judgment. And the judgment is, you're going to be empty you're going to be empty. Um, again, I, I think this, this makes sense, and, and certainly Scripture points to this. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It's vanity. It's futile. It doesn't satisfy. feels like it's going to satisfy. Our, our culture says it's going to satisfy but it is not going to satisfy. Notice that most of the time when people, especially in, in the United States, are being referred to, referred to them as consumers. You ever, you ever think about that? They don't, they're not called human beings. They're not called citizens. They're not called members of society. They're called consumers. You consume, right? It's like an identity. It just, it's just kind of drilled down in our minds and hearts. We're consumers. And do you ever... Do you ever graduate from being a consumer? Do you ever like consume enough to where you're like, okay, I'm no longer a consumer. I'm full. No, <laughs> you don't. And advertisers are spending millions and millions of dollars to tell you you're not full yet. There's something else. There's a new something. You've got to have it. And we're never full. We're never filled. And so this, this is this, what's being described here, that, that, that you're never filled with the things that the world is offering. And, and that, that should tell us something, right? When we're consuming, 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 and we're never being satisfied, it should say, there must be something more. There must be something in the unseen that, that I'm not consuming, that I'm not relating with, that actually would satisfy my soul. Which Jesus is saying is citizenship in the kingdom of God. Knowledge of 
of God through Christ. This, this, this is where you get your deepest needs met. Jesus warned us about this in Luke 9, 25. This is pretty soon after he says, take up your cross and follow me. He says in 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? <laughs> Think about that. He's like, you've consumed the whole world. It's not enough. And you literally lose yourself when you lean on and trust in and try to be satisfied by what the world is offering. The next woe is, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So there's the woe again, lack of human thriving due to separation from God. Descriptor is you who laugh. Now, is it bad to laugh? I mean, did Jesus never laugh? And he's like, don't laugh. No, I don't think the passage is to vilify laughing. But there are different kinds of laughing. There's the evil laugh. <laughs> right? What, what is the evil person in the movie laughing about? They're laughing because they know they're doing something wrong and they're going to get away with it, or so they think. That's that evil laugh. The dismissive laugh. Right? We say to people, you're a joke. You're a joke. Some of us say this to God. You're a joke. This old God stuff, this old Jesus stuff, following him, that's a joke. That's a dismissive laugh. The mocking laugh. That whole God stuff, that whole Jesus, that, that is so silly and ridiculous. And just dismiss that. Make fun of it. Or the demeaning laugh. Laughing at the exp expense of the sins and weaknesses and mistakes of others. Laughing about those who God has made in His image. That kind of laughing reveals a condition of the heart that lacks the acknowledgement of the rightful place of God and compassion towards fellow humans. It's the opposite of love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This, these kinds of laughs. And the judgment for the laugher is you will mourn and weep. Not just a sniffle. This is all-out weeping over the turn of events of one's life, a, a regret so deep that you're weeping. All these riches that you put your hope in have let you down in this life and the life to come. And Jesus is saying these things out of love. He knows how deeply these narratives find their way into the human heart, and he's, he's trying to shake us out of this, confront us with this truth, and he's doing it out of love. The fourth woe also moves to more of a relational experience. We, we were kind of individualistic in terms of woe to the poor, woe to those who uh, are hungry, who are weeping, and now he says, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So we, again, woe, this lack of human thriving due to a break in the relationship with God from sin, a descriptor of people who have everyone speaking well of them. They say, well, is this bad to have people speak well of you? No, it's not. Not overall, but it is bad for all people to speak well of you. All people to speak well of you. Why is this bad? Uh, because it definitely reveals you're not willing to stand up for the truth of God. Right? 
you would have to twist or ignore truths about God in order to get everyone to speak well of you. There's, there's no way to be a follower of Jesus and not have moments where you're having to take stands that are going to get you persecuted, going to get you re- rejected, reviled, maybe your reputation to even be spoken ill of. This is, this is part of the deal. It's part of following uh, Jesus. And he uses the illustration of, of a, the false prophet. Now, why do people speak falsely on behalf of God? Now, it could be deception. They just don't know any better. They really think what they're saying is true. That, that certainly happens. But usually it's because they want to tell people things that are going to make them like them, want to, to, to listen to them and be their follower. Right? Notice the contrast with this woe with verse 22. The blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And so he, he's saying, you, you in the kingdom, you've identified with Jesus as your king. And when the opportunity presents itself for you to stand courageously on behalf of your king, you do it, no matter what. Even if people are not going to speak well of you. Now, I'm not trying to get you to be a jerk for Jesus, okay? I think some people are like trying to get people to hate them. You know, it's like, oh, this feels good, right? Um, but that is not what Jesus is saying. He's obviously wanting us to be loving. He's wanting us to be generous, but he's also wanting us to speak the truth, not, not make an apology for the truth. And he's saying there are going to be times when people are going to hate you because of that truth. And it, it has so encouraged me to, to have so many conversations with, with many of you where you're having the tough conversations with people in your classes, with your neighbors, your coworkers, and hot-button issues are coming up, and you're speaking gospel truth around those issues. And you're, you're doing it with courage. You're doing it with love. It, it so encourages me as your pastor <laughs> to hear you taking those stands even when it's unpopular, even when people are going to reject you, revile you, and spurn your name. It's part of being in the kingdom of God. It's part of the reason Jesus would have a new disciple get baptized. It's like your way to say, I'm all in. I'm all in. And I, I've seen so many of you, when you, you've been baptized and you called your family who was not a Christian and said, I'm getting baptized. And they're like, what? What are you doing? And it was hard. And you're going back and forth with the family. And, and, and they're calling me and like, what is this baptism thing? And, and it, it's, it's awesome, right? Because you're taking a stand for Jesus and you, and you invite your friends and you invite your family, maybe who don't understand baptism and don't, aren't Christians, and, and you're saying, come to my baptism. It's awesome. And it's hard. But it's just, it's just a, it, it's this moment where, where you, you begin to, to identify with Jesus Christ as your king. No matter what. No matter what people think about you. And that's just the beginning, right? As you continue to walk with him, no matter what. So a couple of summary statements to kind of bring some of these things home. That identifying with Jesus is the blessed life, even in this world, if you're hungry, poor, weeping, and hated. Right? Identifying with Jesus as your Savior King is the blessed life, even if in this world you're poor, hungry, weeping, and hated. And... Flip side of that coin, rejecting Jesus results in judgment. Even if you're rich, full, laughing, and everyone likes you. 
I'll say it again. Rejecting Jesus as your king results in judgment. Even if you're rich and you're full and you're laughing and everyone likes you. This, this, this is what Jesus is, is driving at. He's saying the rich that reject Jesus, their life is sort of like a coronavirus-infected cruise. You think life is going to be a dream trip, and it's your worst nightmare. There's, life is only found, life in this life and life in a life to come, it's only found in Christ receiving what he has done for you on the cross to forgive you of your sin and then continue to sustain you in this blessed life as you follow him with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. That's the blessed life. And it is offered to you as a free gift this morning. This is the the first way you could apply this sermon. (laughs) If you know you're you're in the kingdom of the world and you, you hear that invitation to come into the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. Do that today. Receive that as a free gift. This is, this is why he died on the cross, to forgive us of our sins and bring us into this blessed life, a blessed life now and forevermore. You've already, already done that. You've genuinely put faith in Jesus. I, I want you to continue to seek your ultimate satisfaction in Jesus. It's partly why we need to get together every week and do this. <laughs> Because we're just tugged by the world's narratives. And we need to be reminded again and again and again, no, 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 Jesus is the greatest treasure. He is the greatest value. He is the source of the blessed life. I, I love that this, this is kind of like a one-liner uh, parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13 of the treasure in the field. He says, the, the kingdom of God is like this. Like somebody finds this uh, treasure of infinite worth in a field and covers it up, goes and sells everything that they have so that they can buy that field and have that infinite treasure. That's the disciple. The disciple realized, oh, Jesus is the ultimate treasure. These treasures that the world was offering, they don't look like treasures anymore. We'll sell those off and I will follow Jesus with all my heart, mind, and soul, and strength. Continue to seek the ultimate value of your Savior King Jesus. We need that reminder. Uh, and then, those of you who have found the ultimate satisfaction in Jesus, let, let that satisfaction open you up to a willingness to experience poverty and hunger and pain and rejection as you hold out the gospel to people around the world. This is, this is one of the things that, that he's, he's saying. I think it's kind of a, a deeper thing where he's preparing these disciples and, and, and he's saying, there's going to be times when you're going to actually feel deprivation and pain because you follow me. But I am so good. I am so satisfying in this life and the life to come that you can press into that poverty for my name's sake, that pain for my name's sake, pushing into those relationships that are hard relationships, but doing it for... Jesus' sake, packing up and going to another nation, planting your life there to give the gospel to them for his name's sake, because he's that good. This is part of what he's preparing his disciples to do, to understand the value of their Savior King Jesus and their citizenship in his kingdom, so much so 
that they would suffer. They would experience pain and deprivation. Communion is a, is a reminder of, of these realities. It's, it's, it, there's so many things in, in the Lord's Supper that um, tie into the gospel. One of those is that this is food. It's food. Now, this is not going to be an adequate breakfast for you or lunch this morning, right? The actual bread in the, in the cup. Well, I think it's on purpose, right? It, it, it's a reminder that this is pointing to a greater sustenance, an infinite sustenance, and that we need that day in and day out because we are, whether we're experiencing poverty or poverty of relationships or poverty of, of, of our own spirit or all kinds of pain and deprivation, that, that Jesus is enough. The grace of the gospel is enough. He is sustaining us in the midst of that pain and that struggle. And so we need that reminder every day. Every week we come together. We're reminded of that sustenance. We're reminded that Jesus on the night on which he was betrayed, the night before his death, I mean, he's in the midst of of deprivation. (laughs) And what does he do in the midst of that? He takes bread. He breaks it. He gives it to them saying, this is my body (laughs) given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he takes the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. He, he is going to alleviate sin and all the effects of sin. And how is he going to do that? Well, he is going to take on our woe. The one who deserved to be blessed takes on our woe so that he can then give the blessed life to sinners like you and me who deserve well. And so his death on the cross pays for sin and alleviates the effects of sin. That is good news. That's good news. And that's what we're remembering as we take this bread and this cup. This good news that saved us, this good news that sustains us even in the face of pain, deprivation. Let's pray. Lord, this, this is a hard teaching. This is, this is certainly as much as, as first century. This cuts against the narrative that we've bought into in our culture. And we need your grace, Lord. We need uh, your grace of forgiveness for buying into this, for trusting in other things over and against you. We also need to sustaining grace for us to continue to treasure you day in and day out. Do not just treasure you on Sunday when we're hyped up after a sermon, but treasure you tomorrow, Monday morning, we wake up. Treasure you in the midst of a hard week of tests and projects and papers. To trust you in the midst of difficult relationships. To trust you in the middle of financial struggles. Whatever life may throw at us, Lord, to treasure you and live the blessed life for your glory for our own good and the good of those around us, Lord. And so would you take this time of taking the bread and cup and and just use this to, to, to put these truths on our hearts and free us from, from believing some of these lies that the world has given us and, and transform our minds in understanding our citizenship in your kingdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.